Good morning, everybody. First time in three months up here without crutches, eh? <laughs> Can actually preach standing, which always feels more right to me. Uh, for, if I haven't had the, uh, the privilege of meeting you yet, my name is Gareth, uh, and I have the incredible joy of serving on the team uh, that leads Common Ground Durbanville. And um, it's a bittersweet moment when you stand up to preach after baby dedications because it's this beautiful moment, but you feel like you're on a hiding second to nothing because you just cannot compete um, in terms of the attention um, that a beautiful baby draws. So hopefully you can just begin to forget about her and just refocus on me. No, don't forget about her. That's a horrible thing to say. What is it that you need? What is it that you truly need? What is it that Maya needs? What is it that you need to flourish? What is it that you need to be successful? What is it that you need to have peace? A big idea this morning as we continue working our way through John and looking at Jesus as the I am, as God himself, and as he unpacks it in different descriptions of himself, the big idea this morning is that you need the life and the flourishing in all of life and the nourishment and the salvation that only Jesus can bring. Let's read from John chapter 10. Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, round two, let's see if you get it this time. Very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of the sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. 
This command I received from my father. The Jews who heard these words were again divided. Many of them said, he is demon-possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? But others said, these are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, won't you open our eyes to the reality of your son Jesus, who he is, what he has done. Won't you send your spirit to come, open our eyes and awaken our hearts to the truth of who you are, to encounter Jesus and as we see him, to become more and more like him. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is a really well-known passage. And I think, like with many passages that are well-known, we kind of know it almost in isolation from what is actually taking place in Jesus' life. We kind of know it almost like a philosophical text or a, a beautiful picture of Jesus, which it is, but we don't actually realize how Jesus is using this passage. Because what we're going to see is this is not just a philosophical, beautiful picture of Jesus what Jesus is doing here is a prophetic announcement of judgment on the Pharisees and the prophetic proclamation that God himself has come to rescue and redeem his people. So in order to see that, I need to, I need to set the scene for you. Jesus is walking down the road. This is the previous chapter. Jesus is walking down the road with his disciples and they meet a man born blind. And his disciples say to him, who sinned that this man was born blind? Just kind of imagine Jesus face palming a little bit. Come on, guys. That's not how it works. You can't just look at someone's life and say there's a disability. Therefore, there must be sin. That's far too simplistic. He says, you guys don't understand. And he heals him for the glory of God. Now, this guy's been blind all his life. We're not told how old he is, but he's an adult. He is obviously quite excited about the state of affairs. And so he goes to the synagogue. He goes to church, and he goes, it's incredible. I can see this guy, Jesus, restored my sight to me. And the Pharisees go, whoa, 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 whoa. Slow down. This, this guy, Jesus, we're not quite sure about him, but we think we don't like him. Come on, tell us the truth. You weren't really born blind. Stop, stop making nonsense up. He goes, guys, seriously, I don't know what your politics are. I was blind, now I can see. They go, nah, fetch his parents. So they call his parents in. Tell us the truth. Is this man your son? Was he really born blind? They're like, yeah, he's our son. He was born blind. Well, what, what happened to him? We don't know. We're just excited that he can see. And they call him in again. And they say, stop talking this nonsense. He says, I can't help it. This man, Jesus, restored my eyesight. And they kick him out of the synagogue. They kick him out of church. So Jesus hears about this. He finds him. He says, have you heard about the one God would send to rescue his people, the Son of God? He says, I've heard of him. Tell me who he is. And Jesus says, the one talking to you is he. And he worships Jesus. And Jesus says to him, this is why I've come, so that those who are blind may see, and those who are see may become blind. It's a form of judgment. The Pharisees are overhearing this, and they go, so what, are you saying that we're blind? And Jesus kind of very tongue-in-cheek says, well, you're the ones who claim to see. You know, put my words together, join the dots. And then immediately says, very truly I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen. 
He starts telling the story of the shepherd in response to the Pharisees kicking this guy out of the synagogue, out of church, because he's proclaiming Jesus. That's the context. We picked it up right at the end where some people are saying he's demon-possessed and mad. Others are saying these are not the sayings of a madman. Besides, can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Now, the Pharisees are incredible students of the Old Testament. Say what you like about them, but they know their Bible. And when Jesus puts himself in the place of a shepherd coming to rescue his people in opposition to religious leaders that in this passage he likens to thieves and robbers and hired hands who run away from people when the going gets tough instead of rescuing them, they automatically hear Ezekiel 34. As students of the Old Testament, they can't not hear Ezekiel 24. So I want to show you what it is in Ezekiel 24. Isaiah, Jeremiah, where is Ezekiel again? There it is. After Lamentations. Ezekiel 34. This was a word against the religious leaders in Ezekiel's day. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Woe to you, shepherds of Israel, who only take care of yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds, clothe yourselves with the wool, and slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. You have not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. Healed the sick like the blind. You've not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. You've kicked them out. You have ruled them harshly and brutally. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild animals. Can you hear how Jesus picks up on these themes as he talks about the shepherd? They can't not be hearing this. My sheep wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. They were scattered over the whole earth, and no one searched or looked for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, because my flock lacks a shepherd and so has been plundered and has become food for all the wild animals. And because my shepherds did not search for my flock, but cared for themselves rather than for my flock. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against the shepherds. And will hold them accountable for my flock. I will remove them from tending the flock so that the shepherds can no longer feed themselves. I will rescue my flock from their mouths and it will no longer be food for them. Jesus wasn't brutally murdered because he told people to love each other. This is the kind of stuff that got Jesus brutally murdered. A prophetic announcement of judgment on leaders that lead people away from God. For this is what the sovereign Lord says, I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. And Jesus comes and says, I am the good shepherd. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so will I look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. I will bring them out from the nations. That's us, guys. That's us. 
I will bring them out from the nations and gather them from the countries, and I will bring them into their own land. I will pasture them on the mountains of Israel, in the ravines, and in all the settlements in the land. I will tend them in a good pasture, and the mountain heights of Israel will be their grazing land. There they will lie down in good grazing land, and there they will feed in a rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I myself will tend my sheep and have them lie down, declares the sovereign Lord. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak, but the sleek and the strong, those who are self-sustaining, don't think they need Jesus, I will destroy. I will shepherd the flock with justice. This is not a philosophical, nice picture of Jesus, as much as it is. It is a beautiful picture of Jesus. It shows God's heart for his people. But it's a prophetic announcement of judgment on anything that would lead God's people away from him. And Jesus announcing, as God promised over and over in the Old Testament, that he would roll up his sleeves and come and save his people himself. In what I am doing, in healing this blind man, that by the way, you've kept out of the synagogue. God himself is at work rescuing his people. So now we get this passage a little bit better. Now we're ready to start thinking, well, how do we respond to this? How is this the word of God to us today? And one of the ways we do that is we think to ourselves, well, what in our culture, what in our situation is analogous to what was happening there? And so the question is, are there leaders, religious or otherwise, are there ways of life, are there examples of how to live, are there cultural conditionings that would lead us away from Jesus, just like these Pharisees were leading people away from Jesus? And of course, the answer is yes, yes. And so we need to think about this passage in light of the situation today that is similar to what was happening there. This is not just... A beautiful picture of Jesus, although it is that. But it is a pronouncement of judgment on anything that would take us away from him. And a highlighting of how he's come to redeem and rescue us. Now there's actually two I am's in this passage. And I'm, I'm kind of setting up this week and next week. Because in this passage, Jesus says, I am the gate and I am the good shepherd. We're now going to zoom in a little bit and I'm going to continue now focusing particularly on Jesus as the gate. I am the gate. And in kind of broad strokes, as Jesus talks about himself as the gate, he's talking primarily about what he provides for us. And when he talks about himself as the shepherd, he talks about who he is and what he does for us. But we'll see, we'll see that next week. And when we look at what Jesus provides for us, we're going to see that we need what only Jesus can provide. We need the life that only Jesus can provide. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. So I'm driving in the car this week, uh, taking my daughter uh, and my son and Paula's daughter to school. And my daughter says, hey, Dad, can we, can we talk some Bible? She, she did actually say that. I, I didn't just impose this on her. She did actually ask. The other two might have thought it was more of an imposition, but she did ask. I said, yeah, randomly, let's talk about John 10. Just, just randomly. Nothing to do with the fact that I'm preaching it this weekend. And we're working our way through the passage. And I said to her, what do you think Jesus meant when he said, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full? 
and she gave me the most brilliant answer. She said, Dad, I'm not sure. That's a brilliant answer, guys. That's a brilliant answer. It's way better than being sure and wrong. So I said, speculate. And she said, well, I'm not sure. I kind of wonder if it might have something to do with the fact that we go to heaven after we die, but I'm not sure that that's right. And I said to her, I'm not surprised you would speculate that. I think often when we hear Jesus' offer of life, we've been conditioned to think of it as I get to go to heaven after I die, which is true, but is massively reductionistic. It, it narrows things down dramatically. So I said to her, imagine in the car, I say to you, imagine up here right now, there's a dietitian. Okay, I'm now a dietitian, and I say to you, I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. Okay, there's no chance you're thinking about something that happens after death, right? You'd probably interpret that as something like, well, he's going to offer us an eating program that he reckons will improve our quality of life, life to the full. I might have more energy, I might have more mental focus, I might lose some weight if that's what I want to do, but, but that's what he's offering. He's offering an improvement in life right now. Now, that analogy breaks down because the dietitian says, if you do this thing, Jesus says, I have done it. The dietitian says, then your quality of life will improve. Jesus says, I come to offer you a completely new kind of life from spiritual death to being alive with God. The dietitian says, if you do this thing, your quality of life will improve. Jesus says, I have done it so that you can become alive. Now, that is a massive claim. And I would put it to you that unless you know for a fact that a claim like that is true, you'd probably be right to be a little bit suspicious, right? I mean, none of us wants to be taken for a fool with a claim that is too good to be true. And so you might be here, you might be a follower of Jesus, might not be a follower of Jesus, going, oh, no, that sounds way too good to be true. That sounds like way too big a claim. I'm skeptical. And anytime somebody makes a claim like that, you'd be right to be skeptical. You'd need to examine the evidence for a claim like that. And that's a topic for another day, but I would just put it to you that given the fact that all of Western civilization, our culture, our laws, our understanding of the poor, of education, of healthcare, government, everything is built on the foundation of Jesus' teaching, given the fact that billions of people over thousands of years have committed their life to this, given the fact that hundreds of people in this room have committed their life to this, I think it would at least be worth exploring this unbelievably massive claim that Jesus makes and seeing if God won't confirm it in your heart to be true so that you can believe and follow Jesus. Absolutely massive claim, but there's a flip side to this claim. Because Jesus says, I've come to give you life and life to the full. These religious leaders in this context, in our context today, anything that would take you away from Jesus comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I'm speaking primarily now to those of us who are followers of Jesus. Because I think sometimes we don't take that seriously. We love the life that Jesus brings, but do we actually take seriously that everything else comes to steal, kill, and destroy? I mean, the easiest, almost cliched example to be made would be to talk about sexuality outside of the confines of heterosexual monogamous marriage. 
any sexuality outside of heterosexual monogamous marriage, whether it's living with a partner before you're married, even if you're engaged to them, or multiple sexual partners, whether that's homosexual or heterosexual, or pornography in or out of marriage, everybody agrees it steals, kills, and destroys. The, the literature's out there. Steals our intimacy with God, kills our ability to have genuine relationships, and destroys somebody that we might currently be with. That's almost a cliched example. You know, in church, well, we know that. Well, do we take it seriously, number one, in that example? But secondly, do we realize that everything that is taking us away from Jesus is of that nature? Whatever we're living for, whatever we're finding our significance, whatever we're finding our validation, ultimately steals and kills and destroys and we don't like to speak about that because the highest value in our culture is acceptance. And to say that something is stealing, killing, and destroying, and that's a choice that somebody has made, well, now you're just judging them, and you're offending the God of acceptance, and you need to probably be taken outside and stoned. That's our, that's our cultural response. But I've seen sometimes how it can even get into church and Getting to small groups, not, 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 in, not in this church, right? Not in this church. But just, just picture the scenario for a moment. You're in life group, and somebody has the boldness to just peel back the curtain of their life just a little bit and just to, to show you a bit of the, the darkness that's either been done to them or that they themselves have done. How do we respond? Well, we want to love them. We want to affirm them. We want to accept them. Those are good things. Nobody's going to ever open up about their lives if we don't do those things. But because our culture's highest value is acceptance, sometimes the way we respond is we peel back the curtain a little bit to our lives and we say, you know, the same thing you've struggled with, I also struggled with. And now we've reached the cultural God of acceptance and we stop. And this kind of justification by mutual wrongness, I don't know. We feel right about ourselves, which is what we're all longing for inside, not because the gospel has come in and done its work, but because we've been accepted on a horizontal level, because we don't want to judge. Everything apart from Jesus is going to lead to death and destruction and theft. That's not going to build up your heart. That's not going to give you peace. Ultimately, you're going to walk away from there and your conscience is still going to be broken because you haven't had a real work done in your life because we didn't take seriously that these things steal, kill, and destroy, and Jesus brings life. How much better if you peel back the curtain a little bit to your life and you say, you know, I've struggled with those same things. Maybe sometimes I still do, but I know that Jesus on the cross has taken that away and he's cleansed me and he's removed that from me. He's nailed the charges against me to the cross and publicly humiliated the spiritual authorities that tried to hold me in bondage and I have been set free and I know that you love Jesus and so you're also set free. You need to just trust in his forgiveness. That's the life that Jesus brings. And if we don't get there, if we just stick at this cultural level of acceptance and, and being so worried that we might judge somebody, actually judgment reveals 
where we fall short of the glory of God. It's by the knowledge of the law that sin is revealed so that we realize the dire situation we are in. And so when we're offered the free gift of life in Jesus, we go, yes, that is what I need because I understand that everything else only comes to steal and kill and destroy. We need the life that only Jesus can bring. We need to flourish in all areas of life. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. Jesus there is echoing the words of Moses in Deuteronomy 28. This is a blessing over the people of Israel when they are walking in right relationship with God. Moses said, you'll be blessed in the, in the city and blessed in the country. The fruit of your womb will be blessed and the crops of your land and the young of your livestock the calves of your herds and the lambs of your flocks, your basket and your kneading trough will be blessed. You will be blessed when you come in and blessed when you go out. It's a blessing over every area of life. Your womb and your crops and your livestock, your calves and your lambs, your basket and your kneading, the point of that blessing is a holistic blessing over every area of your life. Here's a diagnostic tool for you to find out, are you living for Jesus in areas of your life or are you being pulled away by other things? If you honestly have to say to yourself, there's an area of my life where I really think, feel like things are flying, but it's at the expense of other areas of my life, those things are being pulled apart Chances are, in the area where you are flying, there's something you're living for other than Jesus. Let me, let's unpack that a little bit, okay? You can have success. If you have talent and you give yourself completely to something, you can have success in that thing. You can be an incredible sports person. You can be an incredible artist. You can be an incredible business person living for the fame, living for the prestige, living for the wealth, living for the popularity. You can be an incredible homeschooling mom, living for the success of your children at the cost of other areas of your life. The businessman whose family is just languishing. The artist or the sports person who has no balance whatsoever in their life. The homeschooling mom who when the kids grow up, her life falls apart because everything was focused on them and now she doesn't know what to do with herself. If you're flourishing dramatically in one area, but other areas of your life are falling apart, that's a, that's a warning. You're not being blessed in every area of your life, which is what Jesus comes to bring, and so something is not right. It's a diagnostic tool for you. Wednesday night, I, I was sitting, not Wednesday night, Thursday night, I was sitting on the stoop outside on our balcony with my wife and Dara. We've got a bench there, nice seats. There's a little table in the middle, just fits two gin and tonics very nicely. And, um, and we're, just, we're just talking and I'm, I'm just unpacking stuff to her and she's reflecting brilliant wisdom back to me. And then I'm taking that wisdom over the next few days and I'm going, okay, there, there's some things that are out of balance and, and normally, you know what, guys? It doesn't actually take us very long normally to figure out why things are out of balance because it tends to be the same things that trip us up, right? In my case, I'm a control freak. I feel like I can do things best if I do them all myself. And 
Instead of doing my best and then trusting God and the gifts that he's given to those around me, I strive and push forward and push and push and push. And I'm not trusting in God. And so I'm not flourishing because I'm living out of my sense that I can get it done instead of the beautiful freedom that says I do my best and I trust in God. Okay, that, that's, that's just how I'm wired. Some of you might be wired the same. Some of you might be wired different. But it starts with realizing Jesus has come to give us flourishing in every area of our lives. Now, let's be careful. That word flourishing is carrying a lot of weight in that sentence. And some people might hear it different to how I intend it. Flourishing in every area of your life does not mean that everything is fantastic, there's no conflict, there's wealth, there's provision, there's just overflowing within and, and excess. It means what Paul said in Philippians 4, I've learned to be content in every situation, whether I have or whether I don't, because I've given it my best and I'm trusting God. And so, even when there's conflict, even when people have taken from me and damaged me and hurt me, and there's repercussions of that, and there's ongoing hurt and pain, the world would never call that flourishing. But in the kingdom of God, I can go, I have contentment even in that. Because my peace and my security is not found in my circumstances. It is found in the gate Jesus who provides for me as I come in and I go out of his pasture. So there's a diagnostic tool for you. My advice to you would be to sit down if you're married with your spouse about the things that are driving you nuts and let them give you some wisdom. But don't leave it at wisdom. In the same way that we don't leave it at acceptance when we peel back the curtain, we don't leave it at wisdom. We take it to the gospel. Where am I not trusting Jesus? Because that's always what it comes down to. We need what only Jesus can bring because he brings us nourishment. They will come in and go out and find pasture. I'm not going to dive into Psalm 23 this week because I'm quite sure we'll look at it next week. But let's just think about it in terms of the Ezekiel 34 passage that we read. God says, I'm going to come myself and I'm going to take the people of Israel onto the mountains where there is good pasture. It refers to nourishment. Everything that we need to be satisfied in this life. Earlier on in John, we saw Jesus said, you need to eat my bread. Eat, eat my body and drink my blood. I am the bread of life. Anna preached on that a few weeks ago. I am the bread of life. Jesus also said man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. In John chapter 4, Jesus is chatting to a woman at a well, a Samaritan woman. It's a hot, dusty day. It's the middle of the day. It's a desert region. He says, I have water that you will never thirst again. She says, give me this water, thinking he means some sort of like super bottled water, I guess. He's referring to the fact that we have a spiritual longing inside of ourselves. It's like a hunger. That's why it needs to be nourished. It says deep down inside, I know something is not quite right. And so we go through life seeking justification. We go through life seeking validation, whatever you want to call it. Validation through fame, success, sexual partners, the lives of our children, our bank balance, trying to say to ourselves, I'm actually okay because I have this thing 
That's actually theft, death, and destruction because it can't satisfy and ultimately will fail you. Jesus comes to bring you his word, to bring you himself. Jesus' prophetic announcement that he's coming as the shepherd to gather his people doesn't end when he ascends to heaven. It continues by the work of his spirit in each and every one of our lives. If you're a follower of Jesus, you've experienced the shepherd calling you in. We need the word of God to come and say, you are justified, you are sanctified, you are cleansed, you are forgiven. The spiritual void in your heart is filled by what Jesus has done through his word. By his spirit, reminding us of everything he said and he did is what Jesus said the Holy Spirit would do. I put it to you, the Holy Spirit can do anything he wants, but normally he brings to mind the passages of scripture that you've actually read before. Just putting that out there. He can do whatever he wants, but that's, that's I think, the way he normally works. We need what only Jesus can bring because only he can nourish our souls, and he does it by his spirit, and he does it by his word. Because man cannot live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then you can have flourishing. Then you can experience this life actually as a day-to-day reality, not just something that I'm clinging onto by my fingernails so that when I die I get to go to heaven, which is true at least for a while until God remakes the heavens and the earth and you have a new resurrection body, story for another day. That's actually where we're ultimately headed to. You need what only Jesus can bring because Jesus brings salvation. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. The reason we long for validation, for justification, whatever big word you want to put it, it's because we know something is wrong. And ultimately what's wrong is we're alienated from God. We're separated from him. And Jesus comes as God himself, as the gate to open the way for us to come to our heavenly father, to have our sins forgiven, to be made right with him, to be adopted into his family. If you're not a follower of Jesus this morning, why don't you see if these words resonate in your heart, that's the Holy Spirit telling you, you need to place your faith in Jesus. For those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus, it's a reminder, he has life. I've learned to be content He wants us to get to a place where we can say that, where every area of our life is flourishing, not because we have material wealth, but because we have trust in Jesus, where we can say, I have been spiritually nourished in his pasture. I'm not spiritually searching and hungry and desperate and longing. I have been filled by his promises in his word. We enter there through the gate, through the person of Jesus, his body broken for us and his blood shed for us. And we're going to remember that right now as we take communion. Band, you can start making your way up. We remember that as we take communion because it is an opportunity for faith to be stirred up in us again. For us to go, yes, that is what I believe. Hey, I've been... I've been missing the mark on some things that aren't just minor things. Actually, if I continue that way, it's theft, death, and destruction. But I know his life. I'm recommitting to his life. 
I'm hearing his voice. I'm listening for his voice. I'm wanting to follow his voice. And so we take communion, coming, confessing our sins, coming, celebrating that in Jesus all our sin has been taken away. We have spiritual nourishment. Let's stand. What we're going to do is we're going to come to the front together as the band plays. I'm going to ask you to take the elements, go back to your seat, and then I'm going to lead us in prayer before we take communion together. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, this is something we do as a family. I would suggest to you that if you're not a follower of Jesus, you might not want to do it because this is how we symbolize, one of the ways that we symbolize that we follow Jesus. And so I would suggest to you that it wouldn't make sense to you if you're not a follower of Jesus. But if you want to follow Jesus, this might be an incredible opportunity to actually come forward. Maybe for the first time, maybe you've done it meaninglessly before. But if you want to follow Jesus, this is an opportunity to say, actually, I am identifying myself. I realize I need to go through the gate that is his body and his blood. It's a beautiful complication that it takes that long for everybody to get communion. It's a beautiful complication. I'm going to lead us in a prayer. And you can just follow along as I pray. And if you identify with the prayer, then you can just end with an amen when I'm done. Heavenly Father, we come to you and we confess that we follow after things that lead to theft and death and destruction. We've, we hear right now the voice of your son saying, come into my sheepfold. Come in. And so we turn away from the things that are not of you. And we turn to your glorious son, Jesus. We turn to find life. We turn to find life in every area of our lives. We turn to find the spiritual nourishment that our souls need. We turn to find the salvation that we long for. As we see Jesus, won't you help us by your holiness to become more like him? And if you agree, you can say amen. Church, I pronounce over you, for those of you that have faith, the forgiveness of sins in the name of Jesus, by his body broken for us and his blood shed for us. You can be assured as we remember of your forgiveness. Let's eat and drink together.